You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. Yes, thank you for being here today on this snowy morning. Uh, it's good to be here, indeed. Uh, today we're we're actually coming to the end of the the sermon series that we've been working through. We started before Christmas. And then after our Christmas season, we picked up again in the new year, and here we are um, at what happens to be the end of this this sermon series about the parables of the kingdom of heaven. So we've been going through, mostly in the book of Matthew, to find the places where where Jesus tells us stories, and then the stories have a particular purpose, and that is to reveal to us what the kingdom, what his kingdom looks like. And... um, if you're like me, each and every one, as we've gone through them, we've been, uh, I think we've been amazed and surprised. Again, maybe you've heard them many times, but, but I feel like every time I, I listen to and pay attention to one of these parables from Jesus, it's just like, oh, wow, okay, that's what the kingdom is like, and it's so good to remind ourselves um, about these things. So next week we're going to actually be starting um, our anticipation of Easter, which I'm really looking forward to. But for here and now this morning, we're completing the parables of the kingdom of heaven, or at least the ones which we've covered. Uh, so if you have a Bible, I invite you to, to take it out. If you don't, that's just fine. We'll, we'll have it on the PowerPoint. We're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 20, uh, verses 1 to 16. Jesus talking, he says, For the kingdom of heaven, it's like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the workers on one denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine in the morning, he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. To those men, he said, You also go to my vineyard, and I'll give you what is right. So off they went. About noon and at three, he went out again and did the same thing. Then about five, he went and found others standing around, and he said to them, Why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one hired us, they said to him. He said, You also go to my vineyard, he told them. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard told his foreman, Call the workers and give them their pay, starting with the last and ending with the first. And when those who were hired, about five came, each one received one denarius. So when the first ones came, they assumed they would get more, but they also received a denarius each. When they received it, they began to complain to the landowner. These last men put in one hour You made them equal to us who bore the burden of the day and the burning heat. Twelve hours of work. And he replied to them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on a denarius? Take what's yours and go. I want to give to the last man the same as I gave to you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my business? Are you jealous because I'm generous? So the last will be first. And the first will be last. I'm just going to pray for a moment again and just say, Lord, as we hear these words, I 
I'm thankful for the words and I'm thankful for the truth of them and that Holy Spirit you are guiding us and teaching us as we as we hear what Jesus is teaching us today as we think about it so God search our hearts you know us and I ask that we would have our hearts wide open to whatever uh, plans you have for us today praise you and thank you Amen So thinking about this sermon, I was obviously looking, I was just staring out my window this week thinking about what I was going to be preaching on and, and praying about it because I kept thinking about snow days. And that's not easy to, or that, that's not difficult to imagine because if today was a school day, it probably would be a snow day. But I was thinking about snow days and how, um, as some of you may know but others don't, I was actually homeschooled. So as a homeschooler, a snow day to me meant something entirely different to my friends who were in public school. Because in public school, you get a snow day. It's the best day ever. God's finally answered your prayers and sent, you know, 10 inches of snow. And so you get the day off and you, you get to play outside. And for me, a snow day just meant there's a lot of snow, which was very exciting for me. But my school was waiting for me at my house to, to be done in my home. And so a snow day just... It was, it was more of a mystical thing for me, I suppose, than, than something that I really looked forward to. But nonetheless, I loved it when it snowed. Like, this would be, you know, the best day ever for me as a kid. Because I got to go tobogganing or play hockey or play outside and build a forge or whatever. Um, it was always fun when it was snowy. So I want you to imagine with me, um, that's the setting and, and I'm a kid, like nine or ten years old or whatever, and so I go outside and because I've finished my schoolwork, I'm more motivated because I know my friends don't have school, so I quickly did mine and, and get out there to find my friends and have a, have a good, good time in the snow. <laughs> and meanwhile, I hear someone uh, calling me, and I'm like, who's that? What's, I, thought, I thought I heard someone say my name. Sure enough, I turn around and Mrs. Nixon, my neighbor, lady, the, the, the lady who lives next door is calling me. She's like, Blair, Blair. So I'm like, run up to her door. I'm like, hi, Mrs. Nixon. And uh, she, says, she says to me, Blair, I was wondering, you know, I'm, my health isn't so good and I'm, I'm getting older and so this big snowfall is kind of a big deal for me. I can't actually go outside and, and shovel the snow, but it needs to get done. So I was wondering if you would shovel the walk for me. And uh, the look on my face was surely very transparent because I had big plans to play in the snow. And, and as she's offering me this this job, I, I'm sure that I was less than enthusiastic in my kind of response. In fact, I didn't know what to say. But, but she knew what she was doing. And very quickly she says, like, you know, if you, if you shovel a walk, I'll pay you. I'm still not exactly convinced because I'm thinking, like, she's going to give me a quarter or something <laughs> and tell me not to spend it all in one place. Um, so I'm like, yeah, maybe. Uh, but I don't want to lie because I really didn't have any plans. And so, and again, she's a smart lady, so she knows what she's doing. She says, Blair, if you shovel my walk, I'll pay you $20. And remember, this is me. This is the 90s. And $20 in the 90s was far, far more than $20 is now. If you offered a kid $20 to shovel the walk today, they'd probably be like, call me when you have 100 or whatever. You know, we'll talk some serious money. But when I was a kid, $20 was rich. You could buy anything with $20. And so 
suddenly my tune has changed at this uh, this offer that she's made for me and I'm like yeah you know I think I could do that and, and so I set to work to do to shovel there's lots of shoveling to do and it's hard work but I want to do my best because it's a lot of money that Mrs. Nixon has generously offered me so I got halfway through and uh, one of my friends Timmy Nelson comes running down the street with a talking stick and he's like Blair, what are you doing? I thought we were, I thought we were going to play today. And I'm like, so I explained the situation to him, and he says, well, and of course I brag about the pay. It's 20 bucks, man. And he's like, you serious? I'm like, yeah, $20. <laughs> and he thinks I'm lying, so he's like, okay, what if I go ask Mrs. Nixon if I can help? I'm like, sure, we can get it done sooner, and I don't know, maybe she'll pay you too. So you see where the story is going. He, he goes up, and she, and she says, yeah, I'll help Blair, and, and I'll pay you. So by the end of the, the activity, there's a handful of us kids shuffling the walk together, and we get it done, and we're happy because it's, it's gone by much faster than if I was doing it by myself. So that's good. So finally, we, we're done, and we're all tired out, and the walk is clear, and it looks great. So we walk up and bang on the door, square up with Mrs. Nixon, and she, and she comes... Uh, opens the door and she's like, oh, you guys are done, that's great, let me just, let me get the money. So, she pulls out a $20 bill, which I notice, and I'm like, there it is. And I, and just as I reach out to receive what's my agreed wage for this job, she hands it to one of my friends who was, who, who happened to just show up, like, not that long ago. I'm like, oh no, she's messed it up. Like she forgot. Like this is not what we, this is not what we agreed on. He's not supposed to get twenty dollars. Like he barely did anything. And then Timmy Nelson gets twenty dollars too. And then finally, uh, when it comes to me, thankfully she hands me twenty dollars, which was originally what I was expecting. But at this point, I'm fairly confused. And we say, thank you, and she, closed, she says, thank you guys for traveling, and closes the door. And as soon as the door closes, just imagine the conversation, that the, the wild debate that ensued as soon as she was out of earshot. Because what would, we be, what would I be thinking and surely saying to my friends at this point? This is not fair. This is not fair. This is so not fair. Like, you just got here. Timmy got here halfway through, but I've been shoveling, like, all morning and spending all my time out here. So give me all the money. I'll redistribute it. <laughs> I'm the manager at this point. And, this, and, and here we are with a, a lifetime of very intense economical opinions for each of these young boys set for the rest of their uh, life. Opinions about capital and wage and fairness and all these things, because... It would be a very weird experience. This didn't actually happen, but you can imagine what this would be like, you know, um, for a nine-year-old me on a snow day in Pinocchio, Alberta, shoveling Mrs. Nixon's walk. Right from childhood, I don't know what it is, but there's this instinct in all of us to... Uh, to show it's not fair, isn't there? Like, any of us who have kids who are, who are around kids at all absolutely hear this all the time. 
in all kinds of situations. It's not fair. It's so not fair. And as we grow up, we, we learn that that's not a very socially acceptable thing to shout all the time. So we repress the urge to say that. But I think on the inside, there's still that child inside of us, oftentimes, who's, uh, if we're paying attention, and we can hear, you know, a child yourself whispering, it's not fair. It's so not fair. So we don't say it, but perhaps we think it. And we struggle with it because what do we tell kids when they say that something isn't fair? Life's not fair. Of course it's not fair. That's the way, that's, it's not how the world works. It's not fair. I know that, but life's not fair. We've all heard that a thousand times. And so it's hard because logically we understand that. We look around the world and, and even just at the way that simple things pan out and okay, so life's not fair, we get it. But we still have this, this the desire, a very strong urge for everything in our accounts anyways to be fair. On the other hand, there's nothing that we hate more than feeling that we've been treated in a way that's not justified or getting the short end of the stick or whatever, right? If we, if we work hard, we don't want to be ripped off. Or if we put in time for something, we want to get compensated for it fairly. And this makes sense. But as we read Matthew 20, verses 1 to 16, the parable and the... You know, the imaginary story which I told, which was the same as the parable about working and then going to get paid, we quickly realize that Jesus is not teaching us about how to get what's fair. He's not teaching us about how to work and then receive what's owed to you rightfully. Bottom line is, he's not teaching us about a worldly kingdom. He's teaching us about the kingdom of heaven, which is very different from the systems that we know in our day-to-day living. And if we, if we know about Jesus, this shouldn't surprise us that much. If we've been listening to the other parables, this won't surprise us to, to you know, realize that the kingdom of heaven is not the same as kingdoms of this earth. And Jesus himself says it near the end of his life as, as he's being um, arrested and, and unjustly put on trial before his death on the cross. In John 18, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I, would, uh, that I might not have been delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. The parable of the landowner is a description of the kingdom run by a different set of rules, run by a different kind of fairness, one that's not the same as the world's rules and the world's definitions of fairness. Heaven's justice is very different than we would expect it if we're asking for us to get what's rightfully ours. So let's talk about this for a while and see what's there. At the very beginning we have, uh, Jesus says, there's a man and he has a vineyard. And there's there's two ways that the uh, metaphor of the vineyard is a a good choice or, or a, a 
a smart thing for Jesus to put to the people. First of all, it's, it's similar to me talking about shoveling snow, right? We look outside, there it is. We know what that's like. When Jesus talks about the vineyard to his listeners, they can probably look out in the distance and see, you know, the hills with terraces where they have the vines planted and, and vines and vineyards are a part of, of daily life for at least some of the people who are listening to him. But beyond this, I would also like to suggest that the vineyard is is not just a random, you know, picture from for no reason. I think that Jesus actually chose the vineyard for a very specific purpose. And it's a purpose that his listeners would have been able to pick up on. Because the image of the vineyard has a very uh, significant place in the history of God's people. So if there are people listening to Jesus, rabbis or religious followers of the Jewish tradition, and they hear Jesus talking about a vineyard, the vineyard means something. If they know Old Testament scriptures, the law and the prophets, the vineyard means something. It's not, it's not random. It's actually quite significant. And I believe it presents an overarching theme. I wanted to read some verses to show you why I would say this. Psalm 80. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove the nations. Uh, you drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. In Jeremiah chapter two. You planted a choice vine, holy of pure seed. In Isaiah chapter five, the prophet says, "Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard on a very fertile hill." And a few verses later, in 5, verse 7, For the vineyard, this is where it says it very plainly, The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The men of Judah are his pleasant planting, for he looked out for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So we can see the connection here, that the vineyard is, is not just any old thing that doesn't really have any meaning for, for Jewish people, but it actually uh, it means a lot. Because the vineyard, metaphorically speaking, is them. It's God's chosen people. And these are just, the, I read, I guess, four examples, but that's, that's only four. There's, there's many more in scriptures where God calls his people the vine or the vineyard or in the Old Testament. So if you remember last week, uh, Pastor Greg was talking about the wedding, uh, the royal wedding and the invitation. That was last week, right? <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, last week, Greg was talking about the parable of the wedding. There's a royal family. And bottom line is the, the royal guests don't want to show up and so the king opens it up to everybody instead and says okay out into the streets here's the invitations anyone can come to this wedding party and the point from last week was that in Jesus words or in Jesus parables he's showing that God's people have come to a place where they feel that they have an entitlement to the kingdom Right? They feel that they are uh, special, which they are set apart by God, but the, the ways that they think that they're special aren't so much based on the rules of God's kingdom, but they've, they've based them on rules which they've made for themselves. Right, And so they've started to see themselves as better than everyone else, and they've started to um, 
take the power that they have and actually abuse it and manipulate and, and do things which are, don't honor God. And this is why Jesus again and again addresses these kinds of people and tells them in, in no uncertain terms that, he's, that God is not happy with the way that things have been going, but that God's kingdom is actually going to look quite different than what the way that they set it up to be. So we have the vineyard, and I, I think that this morning, and for Jesus, uh, and it's the people who are listening to him, the vineyard can be a symbol of, of God's people. And then in the first verse of chapter 20, we have the, the man who owns the land, which can represent God, right? The master, uh, this, is, this is this character in the story, is God. And the owner in the story of the vineyard, he needs workers for the vineyard. So this is um, what he goes about next in the next couple of verses is a very normal thing. You need someone to do an intense amount of work, of labor to accomplish something quickly. Well, there's people in the center of town hanging around who don't actually have jobs, right? And they're looking for something to do to, to make some kind of money. And so people would go into town and find these people and say, come work for me for the day or two days or whatever. And they would, they would get paid. Now, I want to point out that in verse 2, um, in the story, it says, the master agreed to pay these men a denarius. He says, come work for the day in my vineyard. I'll pay you a denarius. Now, some of our footnotes in our Bible will say, um, a denarius, this is one day's wage. But one day's wage for who? This is what I didn't know until I was reading about it this week. I found this actually quite significant. A denarius was was the wage that would be paid to um, a Roman soldier for a day's work. In other words, a denarius was was um, a decent, a respectable, serious amount of money. It was a good salary um, for someone who could make that kind of money. On the other hand, the kinds of people who are hanging around waiting for, for any job, you know, uh, a one-off situation like this, especially in Jesus' time and in the context, would most certainly not be offered a denarius for their work. Um, they would, because, I mean, landowners, they want to get away with paying as little as they have to to get the most labor, right? And, and the people who don't have jobs, they're desperate for this money. So you can see how commonly the offer would have been a fraction of, of, a, of the denarius that this landowner offers these men. So this landowner, he finds these laborers and he makes them a very, very good uh, uh, offer for their work. It's actually really generous. It's far more than was expected, far more than was common. So the story is off to a bit of a different start, right? It was all normal up till now. There's vineyards, they need workers, yeah, yeah, he's going to find them. We understand that, but wait a minute, they're getting paid, like, how much? Wow, that's, that's really good, actually. So I would assume that these men, in hearing this kind of offer, would, would jump at the chance, right? They would be um, probably quite happy to make a denarius for, for one day's work. This is a really good deal. So what changed? What changed from the beginning of the story where we can 
it's an assumption, but I think it's safe to assume that they would have been very pleased and, and perhaps even probably surprised to make this kind of money in a day. To the end of the story, where they're where they're actually grumbling, you know, they're complaining, and and they they're, they feel self pity for the kind of reward that they're receiving. The people who work longer suddenly change their attitude about their wage because they decided to compare themselves to the people who were at the front of the line who didn't work as long, right? What was once actually a really good deal for them, in almost an instant, it loses its flavor because they see what's happening to the other guys and they compare themselves to that, and they change their tune. I, I found a, in my notes I have this drawing of what's happening. You know how people used to illustrate you know, scenes in the Bible. But I couldn't find it to send to PowerPoint to, to show you guys, but you can picture it. it. It's hilarious. There's the landowner, and he's he's got some money, like he's got a bag of money, and he's got his hand stretched out with a denarius in his hand. And then there's the guy at the front of the line who just showed up, who worked for about an hour, and he's got this surprised <laughs> look on his face, like... Are you sure this? Because the later workers, the work, it says the master didn't actually tell them what he would pay them. He just would pay them what is right. They weren't promised a denarius. No doubt the other guys, they heard rumor about the good pay. But anyways, so the front of the line, the first guy who just showed up, he's shocked. And well, he's not refusing it. That's for sure. And then behind, the, there's a few more guys who worked longer and longer and longer waiting to get their pay. And their eyebrows are like this. And they're like leaning forward because they see what's happening and like I said, and like the story says, they're not cool with it. And in this particular picture, Jesus looms in the background. <laughs> he's massive. <laughs> because he's God. It's funny, but anyways, the beginning, the workers felt fine about their agreement. They said, yeah, we'll do that. And at the end, they're complaining. And what causes them to complain is the fact that they're comparing themselves to their co-workers and they realize that the situation, the way that people are being paid, is not fair. So they choose to compare themselves in terms of work and results and hours put in and all this stuff, which is normal. And their conclusion is that the, the generosity of the landowner is, is no longer acceptable, it's not fair, it's not fair for them. They deserve more. So I think the point in this parable is the grace. The grace of the, the man who's paying them, the grace of the man, the master of the land, and so on. I wanted to read from Romans because Paul goes into great detail explaining God's grace and how it's true that it's not fair but how it's actually far better than that. Um, so I'll just read a passage from Romans 3, 21 to 26, where Paul says, But now, apart from the law, God's righteousness has been revealed. So instead of God's righteousness only being understood in terms of the law or the sets of rules in the Old Testament, it's been revealed apart from that. It's been attested by the law and the prophets. That is, God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is Christ, that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a propitiation through the faith of His blood to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in His restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented Him, Jesus, to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. So reading this, we see that we're very mistaken if we expect God's kingdom somehow to be uh, fair. This is a mistake. And if I, if, I, if I want God's kingdom to be fair and I start looking at the people around me and, and asking for fairness... What happens is I take my eyes off of Jesus and I remove my, my sight from the, the kingdom that is revealed in the person of Jesus and the righteousness that we know in him. And then I start comparing myself and I find all kinds of reasons to complain or be unsatisfied or un- not content or feel self-pity or whatever. So when we demand fairness from God, we're totally missing the point. Where does my righteousness come from? Have I earned it? Did I create it or fabricate it? Did I build it up? No. My righteousness is found in Jesus. Where does your righteousness come from? Jesus. So if this is true, we're not, we're not allowed to look at each other with envy and grumbling and, and comparing and contrasting and feel like we're getting... No, that's, that's not how it works. That's not how God's kingdom operates. It's far better for us than fairness. The uh, the workers, the, the who worked the longest, they kind of reminded me of the the older brother in the parable about the prodigal son. The story where there's the younger brother who. He takes off with his dad's inheritance. He spends it all on sin. He, he ruins his own life by his own doing, and he just he messes everything up. So he decides he has nowhere else to turn but to come home, so he comes crawling back to his father. And uh, the father not only accepts him, but he, he welcomes him home, right, with, with actually with celebration. He throws a party for the younger son. I want to read about this in Luke 15, about the older brother who was there all along. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants and asked what these things meant, although I'm sure he probably knew. Your brother's here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fat calf because he has him back, safe and sound. Then... The older brother became angry, and he didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I've been slaving many years for you. I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came home, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. It's not fair. It's so not fair, Dad, and you know it. He's giving him a piece of his mind. 
Listen to the father's reply. Son, he said to him, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So here again, the older brother in this story, we we look at him and we see that all of the compassion that he could have had for his brother, like any happiness or, or joy or even thanksgiving that his brother was saved, it was all removed because of his choice of, of, of comparison and uh, jealousy and envy. He won't go into the party and celebrate. And he, he humiliates his dad by forcing his dad to basically come out, you know, leave the party and, and to play with him, to come inside. But I love the truth of what the father says to the older brother that everything the older brother has in the first place is from him. He says, everything I have is yours. It's a very gentle but poignant reminder that yes, you worked for me, yes, you played by the rules and did everything as best as you could, but still, where did it come from? It's for me, I'm the father. Everything I have is yours. So again, to to those who are listening to the parable, who identify with, you know, we're the vine that was brought out of Egypt, we're God's chosen people, we're we're the choice seed that's been planted and and cultivated over all all this time, and so the Messiah has come for us and no one else. I believe that Jesus reveals their heart in this story. He lays it bare and says, "You're actually grumbling about the reward when I tell you, when I tell you that the kingdom of heaven is, is at hand, and it's not just for you; it's for all who believe. The kingdom of heaven can be for an undeserving outsider, right? As we heard last week. All that is given to us from God in the first place." is indeed from God, out of his love, out of his grace for us. And so this attitude of entitlement to the kingdom has got to go. This is what Jesus is telling us. To explain this more, let's, let's read more of Paul's teaching in Romans. This is part of chapter 4. Romans 4, 1-8. Paul says, then what can we say that Abraham, our physical ancestor, has found? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to brag about. But not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, to the one who works, faith is considered not as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. Likewise, David also speaks of the blessing of the man God credits righteousness to apart from works. How joyful are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. How joyful is the man the Lord will never charge with sin. So Paul's 
he's throwing it back to the most famous men in, in the history of God's people uh, Abraham and David these are the stars of the story right in their past but he says what do they have to brag about before God nothing their righteousness was a gift to them from God because of who God is not because of what they had been able to accomplish to get it right these guys Paul and I, uh, David Abraham and anybody else their righteousness is not because of how they've behaved or what they've gained but because of how God has made them righteous so we've kind of been bouncing around to different parts of the Bible and the story and, and explanations of God's grace but let's return to the parable for a minute before we close because I don't know um, although this this passage means much to the people who originally heard it in the first place and the, the things that they were dealing with in, in their relationship with God and Jesus was speaking to them what does it have to say to you and I as Christians because I don't know if uh if reading this story, you identify more with the worker who was out there to begin with. You've been going hard for a long time in the field. You've been striving to see God's kingdom grow in the, in the vineyard. And you've been cultivating in, in the heat of the day. It's backbreaking work to, to do this. It's very difficult, and you know that. Or maybe you feel more like this, the, the guys who just showed up at the end of the day. And you just found Jesus, and the gospel of God's grace is something which, which you hear and you believe, but you, you surely don't deserve it. Wherever you are on this you know, sliding scale, or I don't know, the message is the same. The eternal reward that, that you have been given from God, our Father, is a gift of grace. That all people whose faith is in Jesus are benefactors of the most gener generous and beautiful inheritance. And that we've actually done nothing to earn it. We cannot do anything to make ourselves more worthy of receiving what he's offered us. Because that's not the point anyways, is it? Right from the get-go, whoever you feel like you are, the, the offer was far more and far, far, far better than, than we thought we would ever get. So we receive the good news, we receive the gospel, and we live it out with, not with grumbling, not with comparison, with envy and strife and disagreements amongst ourselves because of all these kinds of things, but with joy and thanksgiving and worship to God because of what He's done. So don't give in to the temptation of of reacting the way that those workers did at the end of the workday where, where we compare ourselves to one another because their comparison robs them of the ability to actually enjoy what they've been given in, in the first place. Uh, the older brother in the, in the prodigal son story, it, in comparing himself to what was happening to his brother, it, it, he couldn't even go into the party because he was so upset about it. And it he could have been enjoying himself and celebrating the, the time count that he felt he deserved anyways, right? Comparison robs us of our ability to have compassion for other people. And it also takes away the true perspective 
or a position of us before God, which is one of worship. So instead of comparing ourselves to one another, uh, let me remind you how Jesus finishes the parable with that famous saying, the first will be last, the last will be first. This is a good summary. This is a good summary of the story which Jesus told, but it's also a good summary, I believe, of this of this series and of the parables, uh, generally speaking. Once again, the kingdom of heaven, we, we have to realize that the first will be last and the last will be first. This means that the kingdom is, is very different from the empires of, of worldly measures of, of success and values and so on. It's, it's, it's a different standard, and the standard is grace. The last will be first and the first will be last. This, to me, this means that there will be places that we see where the world describes greatness. There's, there's places, there's people and things where, where if, if, if we're just listening to um, anyone and everyone, they'll be telling us, yeah, this is what matters. These people are important and valuable because of whatever arbitrary thing we've applied to them. But if the first or last and the last will be first, this means that actually, if we're looking for God's kingdom, those aren't the places that we should probably be looking for the activity of the kingdom is in these, these so-called places of greatness on our terms. Because there's other places that are, there's, there's brokenness, right? There's people who, who don't have it together. There's situations that aren't working out. And there's, there's things that are, are totally, totally helpless, hopeless looking and so on. And this is where God comes to find us. This is where the kingdom is going to be doing things and moving and advancing. If the last are first and the first are last. Because remember, where were we? What were we doing when God came to find us? We were hanging around. We were hanging around in the middle of town with nothing to do. We were desperate for some kind of meaning, some kind of value, and someone to come give it to us. And this is where God came in and found us at to redeem us and this is what he's doing in his creation and the people around us so indeed the last will be first and the first will be last and Jesus doesn't just teach us this or say it as as a philosophical statement he lived it out it's what he did when he spent his time ministering if you look at who he cared for and what he was doing and speaking with certainly he was practicing this and ultimately, he, he showed us what this means and what it looks like when he did go to the cross to lay himself down, to, to, to be made nothing in the world so that he could be exalted in the kingdom. So this morning, I want to conclude by encouraging us to return to this basic truth that I've been talking about with, with God's grace right? and the, the generous reward that we've received from him and the fact that it is grace and it's not something we've earned but it's a gift to receive with thanksgiving and joy 